Well, hello everyone. My name is Angel Wood, and this is Crime of the Truest Kind. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. Let's get that right out of the way. To everyone within the sound of my voice, I wish you health, wealth, and happiness. An embarrassment of riches, however you interpret those words. Online, crimeofthetruestkind.com, and everywhere you listen, please subscribe and rate. I am excited about my first review. Five stars, approved. And I am going to read it to you. Amazing, smart, poignant, well-researched. Angel is terrific. So well done. Thank you, Lee3377. More of that in 2021. Thank you. One more quick thing before we get started. A declaration of sorts. If it sounds like I'm over-enunciating things even more than usual, it is because I have adult braces, as I call them, as opposed to, you know, childhood teenage braces. I'm a grown woman with braces. As the story goes, before COVID hit, I wanted to attend to some things, to right some wrongs that were going on with my teeth, and I got braces. And as a result of COVID, my treatment has been, well, prolonged, and I recently got the wires changed, and it sucks, and I missed deadline, and I really, really want to get this episode out. So, episode eight, it's part two of Michael McDermott the day after Christmas massacre, Wakefield, Massachusetts. Once he was identified as the shooter, investigators were then tasked with learning as much as they could as to what may have led 42-year-old Michael McDermott to go on a workplace killing spree. Now, this is a man who, for six years, spent an hour every six weeks donating blood platelets for the Red Cross. He made that hour drive to Dedham, Mass, every six weeks specifically because it was the only site in the region with the equipment required for the involved procedure. One that takes twice as long as regular blood donation. It was voluntary. No compensation was given. He did get the bumper sticker that he put on his car. It said, Give Blood. State Police Detective Lieutenant Greg Foley arrived at Edgewater at approximately noon on December 26th. He learned that seven people had been shot and killed and the defendant had been arrested. After searching the premises and discovering the seven victims had been repeatedly shot and a large amount of spent shell casings were found from two weapons, Foley was concerned that the defendant may have killed or harmed others in the days or hours leading up to the shooting. His concerns were not without merit, as similar cases to this one had involved violence at the suspect's home. Officers had originally gone to the defendant's former residence in Weymouth, where he lived for many years with his former wife. That apartment had still been leased under both his and his wife's name at the time he left. And no one was sure at the time whether his wife was still living there. We now know that she left the area and moved to Chicago before the shootings took place. He left that South Weymouth apartment on October 31st, He ghosted on about $1,700 worth of back rent and left the place a mess. It was a major loss for the landlord who had to completely renovate the apartment when he vacated. He left holes in the walls, a broken dishwasher, ripped carpets, even old rotten food. 
the focus immediately shifted to his Haverhill apartment to secure the premises and to look for additional victims inside. At or around 2.35 p.m., Captain Donald Thompson and three officers with the Haverhill Police Department went to the defendant's apartment. After learning from the building manager that the defendant rented the apartment and that she believed no one else was inside at the time, the officers knocked on the door and got no response. Using a key provided by the building manager, they entered the residence. The officers did a search of the apartment looking for victims and found none. They did observe, however, ammunition and a firearms manual on the kitchen table and a box labeled with the word danger. Now, of course, I had to find out what was in the box. Bottles of potentially hazardous chemicals. Oh, and there's more. The officers were inside of the apartment for approximately five minutes and did not pick up or remove any items. They secured the apartment from the exterior and waited for further instruction. A search warrant would need to be issued. There was a gold mine of evidence in that apartment. The affidavit included that police had done a protective sweep of the apartment to look for potential victims, and while doing so, saw in plain view firearms and ammunition in boxes marked danger. The warrant would authorize the police to search for and seize the seven categories of items described in State Police Sergeant Sullivan's affidavit. Firearms, ammunition, bullet casings and projectiles, gunshot residue, items marked danger, documents regarding the possession, custody, or control of the premises, documents on the purchase of or license to carry, firearms and ammunition, documents about his employment, his salary, garnishment of his wages, and documents reflecting the mental state and the mental functioning of the defendant in the days and weeks leading up to December 26, 2000. And the defendant's will and documents related to the preparation of signing of a will. The Stadies arrived around 7.30 p.m. with the search warrant and a copy of the sergeant's affidavit. After making the cursory observations of the boxes marked danger, the officers called in the state police fire and explosives unit to determine what the items marked danger were. They were able to return to the apartment at 10.30 p.m. to conduct the search. A trooper filed a return that listed 67 items seized from the defendant's apartment. Additional items found, according to reporting by the Boston Globe, include bomb-making materials, a gas mask, Dungeons & Dragons books, stacks of unopened mail and unpacked moving boxes, and a small filing box where McDermott had kept his canceled checks in numerical order, but this record-keeping seemed to have ended in 1997. But not all of this was admissible in trial, by the way as the search and seizure of these items was later disputed by the defense. Officers had to defend their actions in entering McDermott's apartment on that afternoon. And many of the employees had fled Edgewater during or after the shootings, and officers were dispatched to try to gather information from them. There was no information available as to whether the defendant was married, had a partner or a roommate, had children, or if anyone might be visiting over the Christmas holiday. The information gathered from the building's manager did not definitively rule out any of those possibilities. Reasonable grounds existed to check McDermott's apartment for potential victims due to the type of injury he had repeatedly inflicted on his co-workers at Edgewater. The judge concluded that there was probable cause for the issuance of the warrant even without the officer's observations during the initial entry. So even if they hadn't seen boxes labeled danger and firearms and 
and stockpiles of ammunition. The computers and the disks removed from McDermott's apartment were transferred to the Attorney General's High-Tech and Computer Crime Division's Forensic Laboratory. The affidavit presented information suggesting there was probable cause to believe that evidence of McDermott's crimes would be found within the computers and the disks. Trooper McSweeney made a forensic duplicate of the computer's hard drives and storage media, essentially copying the computer's contents in order to preserve the computer in its original state. They then ran the ENCASE program on data from two of the computers seized from the defendant's apartment. ENCASE pinpoints which files contain a particular keyword, then opens a preview window, which contains a small portion of each file that provides the contents in which the keyword appears. A pattern develops. Hooray for forensics. Court records document McDermott's long-standing problems with depression, beginning in his teen years and continuing into adulthood. Over the years, McDermott reportedly experienced a variety of problems, including visual distortions, extreme claustrophobia, and transgression into dissociative episodes. That's when a person comes out of this state and the person has no memory of what occurred in that state. Mark that. It's going to come back again later. He claimed difficulty focusing on objects, muffled hearing and ringing in his ears, hearing voices from electronic devices, and auditory and visual hallucinations. He kept most of these problems to himself because of his mistrust of psychiatrists and his fear of being locked away. McDermott claimed that during his employment with the main Yankee power plant, he was subjected to radiation exposure that killed his thyroid. It is true that he took a number of medications over the years, including something for hypoactive thyroid, for high blood pressure, and since he moved to Haverhill, different antidepressants, including Prozac and Trazodone. Hypothyroidism, because I want to know, is a condition in which the thyroid gland doesn't produce enough of the certain crucial hormones. It's underactive. As opposed to a hyperthyroid, I'm not a doctor. He also admitted that since the 1980s, he had been lying to doctors to obtain prescription medications, claiming that for as long as he had access to the internet, Going back to 1985, he, quote, wanted to understand what type of insanity he had, and he went about conducting his own research. Those searches included how to fake mental illness, psychosis, and malingering. Now, Psychology Today defines malingering as the purposeful production of falsely or grossly exaggerated physical and or psychological symptoms with the goal of receiving a reward. A malingerer may, for example, attempt to raise the temperature of a thermometer through heat from a lamp or alter a urine sample by adding sand to it. Some cases of malingering are easy to detect. However, if the malingerer is more discreet, a clinician may have difficulty gathering evidence for an accurate diagnosis. I get the feeling I know a few malingerers. Mm. McDermott understood the data he gathered on these subjects through his online research. In December 1999, a year before the shootings, he bought a book called Clinical Assessment of Malingering and Deception, which he claimed not to understand. And he later obtained an article on the internet on the psychometric detection of malingering. Psychometrics, as I understand it, is the degree to which one is affected by a disorder. 
The defendant also downloaded an article entitled Borderline Personality Disorders, Symptoms, and Etiology, which, he explained, was an attempt at self-diagnosis. He studied and researched the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the MMPI test. It is a psychological test that assesses personality traits in psychopathy. It is primarily intended to test people who are suspected of having mental health or clinical issues. Interestingly, it is considered a protected psychological instrument, meaning it can only be given and interpreted by a psychologist trained to do so. And you cannot find it online. I tried. We are about to hit some of the red meat of this defense. Ready? On December 14, 2000, McDermott met with Cheryl Troy, the head of human resources, and Patricia Bohr, the company's chief financial officer, to discuss the tax lien the IRS had placed on his salary that required Edgewater to garnish a portion of his pay. McDermott claimed that he did not owe the IRS, something we keep hearing throughout the story. He was very emotional about this news, and then he was very angry. McDermott testified that on that same day, December 14, 2000, the Archangel Michael came to him in a vision. An Archangel like a top-ranking angel. The Archangel told him that God had a plan for him. Remember, the Martinez family was a very traditionally Catholic family. They held very strong beliefs. Now, under this plan, he could obtain a soul. It had been his belief that he did not have a soul that he was born without one. He would go to purgatory and eventually to heaven if he went back in time and prevented the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. The archangel instructed McDermott to act upon the appearance of three signs. And he explained those signs. The first sign was the appearance of the archangel. Check. The second sign was a partial solar eclipse on Christmas Day that he watched with his niece. He interpreted that as the second sign that he should act. And there was. I found a list of solar and partial eclipses in the 20th century. During the period of 1901 to 2000, there were 228 solar eclipses, of which 78 were partial, one on December 25th, 2000. The third and final sign came from his own mother. On the morning of December 26th, His mother called him at his desk to wish him a happy St. Stephen's Day, adding, What would you rather Boxing Day? St. Stephen's Day is observed in honor of one of the first Christian martyrs, St. Stephen, stoned to death shortly after the crucifixion. Brutal. In a Nathan Explosion voice, someone will know. And with that, the secret code for mass murder became clear to him. Interestingly, though, as he had already brought the guns the night before, It was raring to go by the time he received that third sign. McDermott then got up from his desk, ate a pile of painkillers he stole from his father, washed them down with vodka. In his mind, an overdose would kill him. It allowed him to enter a portal where he could kill Hitler and the Nazis. His attorney did say at trial that McDermott stood by this and does not believe the people he shot were his friends or his co-workers. They were going for the insanity defense, and this is some pretty crazy shit. McDermott spoke of how he reasoned with himself and how he could not leave himself to be captured after taking out Hitler and the others. 
because suicide constitutes a sin that condemns one to hell. But the defendant concocted a scheme where he would die without sin, then succumb to death afterwards. Now this plan would reserve him a seat in purgatory. This is a very telling line. The defendant felt that Cheryl Troy and Patricia Bohr, VP of HR and CFO respectively, were no better than Nazis because they just chose to follow orders. The orders were to allow the IRS to attach his wages for unpaid taxes, something they were required to do, and something other employees at Edgewater had tried to negotiate on his behalf. He rejected all arrangements to pay off his tax bill and continued with the line that he didn't owe any money. Past co-workers had spoken about McDermott's irrational reactions to perceived slights. He would have a massive overreaction to some things that were even benign. Bruce Joy was a former Navy shipmate of McDermott's on the USS Narwhal in the 1980s, who said he was a good comrade, but he could lash out if he felt insulted or slighted in ways that might really shock you. I find submarines equally as fascinating as true crime, in a different way, I guess. But the narwhal was decommissioned and sent to the Navy Submarine Recycling Program in 2001. Fascinating. I would love to get in a submarine. Are you kidding? McDermott plotted. He chose his weapons. And on Christmas Eve, took his AK-47 assault rifle and his shotgun out for a spin. He was seen in a wooded area near his home in Haverhill by a woman driving by who heard the shots and saw him and his car. Easy to remember. He had a vanity plate. It said T-Bone. Just kidding. No, it didn't. It said Mucko. All firearms in his possession were unlicensed. It is possible they had been at one time, but they were not at the time of the murders. He spent Christmas Day with his family and stopped by the office on his way home to drop off a few things as one does. He used his employee pass card to enter at 6.57 p.m. He dropped the intended murder weapons he planned to use to slaughter his co-workers. The way he described it was like some sort of fucked up courtesy as he did not want to walk in and scare everyone off and cause a panic by carrying firearms. So instead, it was a surprise attack. On the morning of Tuesday, December 26th, he loaded up on guns, the not all winners, and he went to work. His large black duffel bag was packed with ammunition and a 32 caliber automatic handgun that he put in his office cabinet. He took those Percocets and the Darvocets together with some vodka. That's hardcore. You can't even get Darvocets anymore. They're banned in America. He interacted with several employees. He seemed friendly, cordial even. He spoke to his mother that morning and someone called about his late car payments for his 1994 Plymouth Acclaim. Mucko the fucko vanity plate. He'd been hiding it for weeks, so it wouldn't be repossessed and towed away. And on that morning, though, he parked in the Edgewater parking garage, where he told the bank they could come and find the car and take it. He wouldn't be needing it anymore. That's when an armed McDermott walked to the reception area with that duffel bag. When someone asked, it was Janice Haggerty, believed to be among the first people shot. When they asked him where he was going with that bag, he calmly announced that he needed to see someone in HR. That was, according to testimony, the triggering phrase. A portal opened in front of him, and he was transported to a bunker in Berlin in the year 1940 with his AK-47 assault rifle and a shotgun. 
There were two men wearing swastika armbands, whom he shot with the AK-47. And then he shot three men with armbands who were on a raised platform. On the stand, McDermott testified that he could feel Hitler's thoughts emanating from a room. So he blew the lock off the door to that room. He went inside. He shot and killed the last Nazi who was hiding there and then shot and killed Adolf Hitler. His mission was now complete. When asked what he did next, he said he returned to the first room in the bunker and sat down. Since he now had a soul, he wanted to remain free of sin. He stayed there and waited. Eventually, he was dragged off to a police station in Berlin, where he later died. When asked while on the stand where he was now, he stated that he is currently in purgatory and that nothing around him exists. That's such an interesting take on bullshit. Please do not be alarmed if you begin to hear strange noises. My bulldog just came down here. And, well, I've given up trying to fight it. Two mental health professionals, both of whom testified for the defense, Dr. Ann Schwab, a psychologist, and Dr. Alan D. Rothstein, a psychiatrist, had treated McDermott prior to December 26, 2000. Schwab first met him in Maine in June 1987 and last saw the defendant in April 1988. Dr. Schwab diagnosed the defendant as having a depressive mood disorder and an obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. McDermott disclosed the sexual abuse that he suffered as a child. He reported feelings of loneliness, troubles at work, hearing noises from a television when the sound was off, and sensitivity to high-frequency noises. About that, McDermott said, you learn not to talk about the noises because people think you are crazy. In 1996, McDermott began to see Dr. Rothstein and was diagnosed with having recurrent major depression, a mixed character disorder, and an obsessive-compulsive personality. This diagnosis remained the same through December 2000. In 1999 and 2000, Dr. Rothstein prescribed the defendant Prozac and Trazodone. During a therapy session on March 7, 2000, the defendant reported that he had started working at Edgewater Technology and that it was a terrific place. He acknowledged that he was still having problems with eating poorly, he was overeating, and racking up credit card charges. He also told the doctor that he had guns. It was Dr. Rothstein's suggestion that in light of his mental state with having depression and suicidal feelings that he should not have guns. He gave the very standard reply of, I have a legal right to have them, and despite not owning any of them legally, and said that if anyone tells me I have to get rid of them, I'll just stop having contact with them. During a session in September 2000, McDermott said he was feeling depressed over the past two months. He had stopped going to the gym, and he was upset because the IRS claimed he owed them money. In early November, McDermott reported that his condition had improved. Then, on December 14th, he called Dr. Rothstein. He was upset. He told him the IRS was going to take a large sum of money as wage garnishment, leaving him too little to live on. Dr. Rothstein suggested that McDermott come in prior to their next scheduled appointment, which was... December 26th. 
The defendant reported back on December 18th that his supervisor was trying to talk to the IRS on his behalf. Dr. Rothstein again offered the defendant a sooner appointment, to which he said he would contact him if necessary. Dr. Rothstein never heard from McDermott again. Following his arrest, McDermott had a series of evaluations. Now, there's a lot packed in the court documents regarding the opinions of mental health professionals. I will try to make sense of the court's language. Psychologist Ronald Ebert and psychiatrist Anthony Johnson evaluated McDermott. And based on his review of records and interviews with the defendant, Dr. Ebert concluded that the defendant suffered from schizophrenia of the paranoid type. Based on his review of records and interviews with the defendant and others, Dr. Joseph concluded that the defendant suffered from schizoaffective disorder of the depressed subtype. Both Dr. Ebert and Dr. Joseph expressed the opinion that, at the time of the killings, the defendant was suffering from a mental disease that deprived him of the substantial capacity to appreciate the wrongfulness of the criminality of his conduct and interfered with his ability to conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. Oh, that's a lot. Their findings were that he did not really have control of his actions. Neither believed that the defendant was malingering. In their rebuttal, the Commonwealth questioned Muhammad Hassar, a software developer at Edgewater who had worked with McDermott. While at work on September 22, 2000, Hassar explained to the defendant that he was fasting for the religious holiday Ramadan. The defendant told Hassar that he did not believe in God, but rather he believed in science. The Commonwealth of Massachusetts presented two expert witnesses as well. Psychiatrists Dr. Michael Annunziata and Dr. Malcolm P. Rogers both of whom testified that, based on their respective reviews of various records and interviews with the defendant and others, the defendant was criminally responsible when he committed the killings and was feigning mental illness. In reaching his opinion, Dr. Annunziata considered the defendant's ingestion of pills as a teenager, his self-inflicted superficial scratches on his wrists after he was fired from Maine Yankee, and his insignificant overdose of pills in 1990 that did not require hospitalization that occurred after he ran out of tuition money. Dr. Annunziata testified that the circumstances of these acts show that they were mere gestures and not real suicide attempts. Dr. Annunziata acknowledged that the defendant has not had a happy life in many respects and has had a depressive disorder and a personality disorder but explained that these disorders did not amount to a mental disease or defect. Dr. Annunziata stated there were no indicators that the defendant had a schizophrenic disorder. He explained that schizophrenia is a longitudinal disorder. It is not a condition that abruptly appears. It manifests over time. He also explained to the court that delusions, especially of the elaborate and dramatic nature, such as the one the defendant claimed occurred to him on December 14, 2000, do not appear abruptly in a person like the defendant, someone who has no prior history of psychosis. 
McDermott exhibited no dysfunction in the weeks, the days, the hours, or the minutes before the shootings. His performance at Edgewater was favorable. And on the morning of the shootings, he was able to carry on in his usual course, speaking with his co-workers. He talked to the rep from the bank who talked about his car being repossessed, and he had a conversation with his mother. The Archangel's prediction of an eclipse, part of the defendant's delusion, was an entirely predictable event that did, in fact, occur on Christmas Day, as I told you. That a delusion would unfold into reality was coincidental to the extreme. McDermott's statement on December 22nd to his co-worker about Ramadan and that he did not believe in God was, well, the opposite of his reported religious delusion that took place on December 14th and his compulsion to carry out God's plan as relayed by an archangel. He said he didn't believe in God. The top angel visits him to carry out God's work. Dr. Rogers also concluded that the defendant had problems with depression and a personality disorder, none of which constituted a mental disease or defect. Dr. Rogers expressed the opinion that the defendant did not have a psychosis at the time of the shootings. He indicated that the defendant appreciated the wrongfulness of his conduct based on his decision to test fire his weapons in a secluded area and his decision to sneak the weapons into Edgewater on Christmas night when nobody would be around. Dr. Rogers' conclusion that the defendant possessed a substantial capacity to conform his conduct to the requirements of the law was based in part on the defendant's ability to function and act in his usual fashion during the time leading up to the shootings and his presence of mind when the police entered Edgewater to hold still and do not move and keep his hands where they were visible. Dr. Rogers believed that the defendant was faking an insanity defense. Many of McDermott's reported symptoms did not fit his observed behavior. Dr. Rogers based his conclusion on several factors. There was no evidence of psychosis. A delusional belief system usually evolves gradually and does not begin at a fixed moment in time. After someone develops a delusional belief system or hallucinations, there is a fluctuation in the severity of those symptoms. They do not remain static, such as maintaining, in the defendant's case, an ongoing delusion that he is in purgatory. Of the many forensic searches run on the defendant's several computers that were legally seized from his apartment, we know McDermott researched specifically how to fake mental illness and how to malinger. And we also know that prior to trial, the defense moved to suppress this evidence that police officers seized from his Haverhill apartment. Why? Because it blew his insanity defense out of the water. In these 20 years since the murders at Edgewater, that day after Christmas, and the hundreds of killings since, the debate continues on common-sense gun control measures. Little has changed. And mass killing has only gotten more grim with higher body counts. Let's think about it for a minute. If it's not a mass casualty, it's like they don't even cover it on the news. Now, I'm not going to get into whether we should name people or not name people, or we should definitely focus on the victims. But just imagine for a minute if we could figure out a way to prevent people from opening fire. Imagine if we could somehow prevent mass casualty incidents. I don't know how we do that. 
Michael McDermott had no criminal record, though he did suffer from mental illness and made attempts to harm himself on several occasions. He owned an arsenal of weapons and ammunition. He did not have proper licenses to own any of the weapons in his possession. Gun laws in Massachusetts are among the most comprehensive and restrictive in the U.S. Violent crime in Massachusetts is also among the lowest in the nation. Gun laws in Massachusetts regulate the sale, possession, and use of firearms and ammunition. According to the CDC, states with the highest gun mortality rate as of 2018, Texas, 3,522, and have some of the most lenient gun laws in the U.S., It will soon be easier to carry guns in Texas churches, schools, apartment buildings, and disaster zones. In 2019, Governor Greg Abbott signed several bills that would further loosen Texas's gun laws. What's state number two? California. 3,040. The total number of people killed by firearms. Followed by Florida, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. Population is clearly a factor. Politics, not so much. On April 24, 2002, Superior Court Judge R. Malcolm Graham sentenced Michael McDermott to seven consecutive life sentences without parole for the killing of Janice Hegarty, Cheryl Troy, Louis Javel, Craig Wood, Jennifer Capo Bianco, Rose Manafredi, and Paul Marco. McDermott's defense attorney argued he was insane when he shot the people he'd worked with for the better part of that year. People he'd singled out. McDermott showed no emotion upon hearing his sentence. After his sentencing that day, the Massachusetts District Attorney Martha Coakley, who helped prosecute the case, told reporters, We believe that this verdict confirms our understanding that, although Mr. McDermott was a troubled individual, He manipulated the mental health care system for his own reasons. Like many of the killers I have told you about already, Michael McDermott was ill, but he was not insane. Offender ID W80188, Michael Morgan McDermott, is housed at the Old Colony Medium Security Correctional Center in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. He is 62 years old, and will serve out the remainder of his life with the Massachusetts prison system. That is, unless he gets transferred. But that seems unlikely. At least he doesn't have to pay those taxes back, huh? That's showing him. After the shooting, the people of Edgewater planted a cherry tree outside the offices. And each December, employees weave carnations into the branches in honor of those seven people who were lost that day. I'm not sure that Edgewater is still located in Wakefield. But I'm sure that cherry tree still is. Thank you for listening. I look forward to this brand new year. I'm very excited to dig into more stories. And bring them to you. Crimeofthetruestkind.com Find the show on Facebook at Crime of the Truest Kind. Instagram at Crime of the Truest Kind. On Twitter at Truest Kind. You can email the show, Crime of the Truest Kind at gmail.com. 
I have stickers. I love merch. I got real merch heavy in 2020. And so when the time is right, I will launch a Patreon. But I don't think we're there yet. I do have gorgeous stickers. If you would like one, ask supplies last. Send me a DM or an email. I'd be happy to send you some. I return in two weeks' time with another New England crime story. In the meantime, rate and review the show. If it's pleasant or relatively so, I will read it on the show. In closing, I find there's always reason to say this. Lock your damn doors, true crimes. (laughs) 